episode, we will be covering the meaning of words and the rise of political correctness, talking about partisan verbiage in this new hyperbolic age. We'll be talking about the national debt briefly, touching on the Great Depression, the Great Recession, and also just the meaning of what it is that most of our leaders are saying today. And then we will end by talking about the unintended narrative versus the intended narrative. So, the meaning of words and political correctness. Political correctness rose to give Americans a framework for a civil discourse so that they could disagree and it not come to blows. Um, political correctness, in my, I believe it established a baseline, a baseline which each person could relate to one another finally. Because think about before, if you could just say anything that you want, um, I'm sure you can think of any one of outdated, archaic, racist terms, but if you saw that exhibited in all of the people around you, you're not going to feel that there is any sort of established connection at all. And so what political correctness did is it established a baseline. However, the fissures in both sides, on the right and the left, remain despite fissures, I'm sorry, they, the fissures remain despite political correctness. Um, and why is that? It's like if we're trying to, if we're trying to play along and be good, and BPC, so to speak, why is it that the there are fractures and fissures within the Democratic and Republican parties? Well, the GOP abandoned political correctness during the rise of the Tea Party. This started in, I believe, 2010 and is still going on. Um, the baseline was lost when the Tea Party rose and like when Ted Cruz shut down the government, Rand Paul made a number of speeches when someone screamed out that Obama was a liar. Um, that The baseline was lost. The, the um, agreement, the social contract to conduct ourselves with fairness was lost. And besides the GOP's abandonment of political correctness, Facebook and the news media have put each person into an echo chamber. And what do I mean by that? An echo chamber, if you sit in a really echoey room and you just make a noise because you love the sound of your own voice, that's exactly what Facebook and the news media has done. Our news media is so fractured and if you watch one channel to the next channel, I literally yesterday watched Fox News and then I watched CNN and both networks were covering the other, talking mad shit about each other. Just, it's so strange to me. And the media seems to also not want to acknowledge the fact that they pump up things to be far worse than they actually are. The hatred and the vitriol that is exhibited on the media, in the media, I don't necessarily know that that's true in every city and every state across America. And then finally, we have fake news. Fake news ultimately tank political correctness because we live in an age now where we are unable to trust the things that we see immediately. Everything that we come in contact with or come across information-wise requires vetting and confirmation. And that has made us skeptical of one another, of the media, of the government. I mean, just across the board. Okay, moving on to partisan verbiage in this hyperbolic age fueled by lies. The GOP verbiage and misnomers. A misnomer is a word that is used 
to describe something that does not accurately describe it. Um, and verbiage is just the words that the grand old party uses. The misnomers I'm specifically citing are entitlements versus tax, tax breaks, stimulus versus bailout, and dehumanization of the other side. What the dehumanization part of it, I'll start there. If I look at someone who is of African American descent, and to me, I see a, you know, a porch monkey or a coon or something like that, using that as examples, that is a misnomer to describe a human being who is brown skinned. Follow that? Okay, let's go back a little bit more to stimulus versus bailout. So a stimulus package is it's derived from the word stimuli, which is to excite or to bring to life. And so we're, we're going to bring the government and we're going to bring the economy to life. We're going to do a stimulus package. However, when President Obama had to do what he did to save our auto industry, the banking industry, and a number of other industries, he it was largely revered to be a bailout. And it was wildly unpopular, by uh, according to some. So what makes a stim what makes a stimulus package a stimulus package and what makes a bailout a bailout? And then finally, entitlements versus tax breaks. The idea of an entitlement is saying that there is something owed to this person or group that they have not worked for, that they are not deserving of, versus tax breaks, specifically the most recent Trump tax cuts. Um, that went largely to the one-tenth of one percent and to corporations. So how is it, because the thing, the bottom line is this. When Mitch McConnell stands there and says, oh, well, we've got to reduce the national debt because of this, 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 and this, and does not acknowledge the $2 trillion that they added to the deficit by way of the tax cuts, and how that that is that is dishonest and it is it's not even hyperbolic it's just a lie um excuse me so if you are the thing i need people to understand is that the us government think of it like an entity like a business and the taxes that are coming in from federal income all that stuff that is our revenue that's our revenue stream and the Entitlements and the tax breaks is money going out a lot of times. Actually, most of our entitlements are backed by a fund um, that is that is fed into by way of direct payment from most of our constituents and most of our compatriots' is checks. And you'll see that on there where it says uh, Medicare and Social Security, all that. Um, so, but the, but the result is that it's money that's not going directly into the state to make the state better, like it's institutions and such. So why is it that something is an entitlement or a tax break when the result is the same? The entity that is the government has reduced revenue and therefore increases its debt. But because of partisanship, the GOP will not call entitlements what they really are which is investments in our greatest resource, which is the American people, versus tax breaks, which I get that it's a tax break, but also you must acknowledge that it has added to the national debt. And when the GOP previously has always harped on that, it, it doesn't track. 
And so I think that we've got to realize that the, the, the grand old party, the Republican Party, is not the party of fiscal conservatism. The Republican Party is not the party of a balanced budget. The last party that balanced the budget was Bill Clinton and the Democrats. Okay. So, <clears throat> dehumanization. The democratic verbiage and misconceptions. The Democrats are just as guilty, unfortunately, due to what I call selective outrage or when they get the outrage machine all fired up. Um, when we do that, we make ourselves look small. We make ourselves look as though we have a number of misconceptions about this world and what's going on in it that we are unable to see beyond to be pragmatic, objective thinking beings. And furthermore, such, so let's talk about like sanctuary cities versus the rule of law. Anytime someone brings up something about sanctuary cities, the Democratic Party immediately pivots to talking about xenophobia, which is fear of immigrants. But that is not necessarily the case in every situation. Sanctuary cities and the arguments for and against them are all valid. However, many of the arguments against them deal with public safety, like giving people driver's licenses who may not have been properly trained, um, giving people driver's licenses who are not technically citizens who might possibly be able to use those to go and vote when they're not actually a citizen. Those are real concerns. And when we on the left decide that, oh, well, you're just racist or you're just xenophobic, we are ignoring the rule of law. The rule of law. The bottom line is that the immigration system, as it currently is, is our fault. Every one of the 329 million Americans, we are all complicit in allowing this, this just really, really fractured system that is bogged down and is devoid of, I think, about 30% of the immigration judges that are supposed to be sitting so that the immigration court can, or immigration um, court cases can move forward. <clears throat> so, sanctuary cities versus the rule of law. One side pivots to calling the other side xenophobic, which is just name calling. And the other side talks about the rule of law and they frequently espouse ideas apropos to that of a strict constructionist, which is someone who wants to follow the actual words of the constitution. Um, and the, the problem with this is that the elite in America, specifically on the left, the elitist terminology is very, very condescending and when people do not understand something, they're already uncomfortable. And when you have the messenger standing there just emboldened in their indignation, it is not a good combination. It makes people feel like, well, it makes the other side feel like you're not existing in reality because you are not acknowledging that the laws on the books say that it is illegal to enter the United States of America unless by these this and that and that and that. So when the Dems and the left all pivot 
whenever we talk about sanctuary cities, they're basically abdicating the rule of law. And the thing about it is that our laws are what gives them power. Our laws are what protect the weak and the vulnerable. And it's frustrating. It is very frustrating for me to sit back and watch. Um, And now that we have the elitist terminology, words like deplorable and demagogue, they have become so popular this election season. And the problem with it is, is that I'm sure a number of people can't identify exactly what a deplorable or a demagogue is. You know, it when you say that, because of the prevalence of the American low information voter, you are not speaking to your audience. You're not meeting your audience where they are. You are speaking over them and you're trying to demonstrate to the listener how many big words you know. And dehumanization, whether we're calling one side deplorables or thugs and gangs, or if we're calling one side niggers and spicks, it doesn't matter. The dehumanization all play into the steps of genocide. There is a formula that Hitler followed, that Mussolini followed. There are steps to this process. And unfortunately, though our current president is not a murderous dictator, he is not Hitler, he is not Mussolini, the likeness of his go-to method to motivate his base to that of Hitler when he was trying to start his revolution uprising and to Stalin when he was trying to start up his revolution and to Mussolini when he was trying to start up his revolution, so to speak. That is, it makes people nervous because those of us who are we consider ourselves to be elite, quote unquote, we remember. We have not forgotten our past. We remember. And so whenever you have groups like Antifa or the white nationalist movement perpetrating violence against their opposition, that lets me know that that group or that group of people has dehumanized their opposition to such a degree that they are willing to cause them bodily harm and feel as though there is no recourse for it. And I talked about the national debt a little bit earlier. And I had stated in part one of this segment that investments in the people are, they're being misrepresented. They are. Investments in the people are being misrepresented as entitlements for the quote unquote entitled. I don't really know people who are on food stamps that feel as though they are owed them. Most people are raising families. Most people are working jobs that are not paying them enough. And so they're trying to find a way to survive and get by. And the thing about it is that that investment in the American worker by way of a quote unquote entitlement program It is no different than making an investment in a company that you think will have a great return. Because the reason why there are programs like food stamps, like Social Security, one, the Great Depression, um, the Great, I'm sorry, the Great Depression versus the New Deal, the Great Society, those, these were policy proposals put forward by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson that changed the baseline for low-income, bottom-floor, basically, housing in America. And what that did is it elevates all of us. It, It raises us all up. But 
when we have Wall Street running the government, especially now, Main Street is lost. The tax cuts that, that President Trump passed, the tax cut for Main Street for middle-income Americans is only there for two years. So why, why is it that the corporate tax rate is permanent? Well, I'll tell you. Consumer confidence. Our financial system in America is based on consumer confidence. It's not backed by the gold standard, not backed by the silver standard. It is based on consumer confidence. And the Federal Reserve is a private bank. For some reason, we've allowed this private bank to to tell and dictate all of these things that affect our life. I'm not saying that it's bad. I just think that it's odd that a private bank is being misrepresented to the American people with a misnomer that calls it the Federal Reserve because that's not what it is. It's a private bank that produces money and that charges the government and puts away its profits just like any other company. So, Obamacare versus healthcare cost savings. Obamacare brought Obamacare brought healthcare to millions of people who never had it. I remember when I was living in Florida, I went on a date with a, a gentleman who actually had the same name as me, Timothy, and he at the table when I first sat down, he comes out and tells me that he used to be a drug addict and that he's HIV positive. I mean, it was a lot to take in immediately, but as the conversation progressed beyond that point, it was so wonderful to see his face light up and just to see the the joy and the passion because he is he was so grateful that for the first time in the 34 years he had been in existence, he had health insurance. Can you imagine that you have been walking around with what many people have reg- have erroneously regarded to be a death sentence in HIV, and now you suddenly have access to health care. So how is it that Obamacare was so unpopular during 2010? It was so unpopular during 2010 because the Democratic Party ran away from Barack Obama. They allowed the GOP to peddle mailers and flyers that were not representing the actual numbers of what was going on in the economy. Yes, the recovery was very slow. Yes, it looked as though that Janet Yellen and the Federal Reserve were keeping interest rates artificially low. However, it doesn't take away all of the other benefits that come along with it. And then you look at the auto industry versus just letting them go under. If we had to let them go under, I mean, Saturn's gone now, and no one's really, like, losing their shit about that. But the auto industry speaks to the lifeblood of America. Cars are what change people's lives. When someone gets a vehicle of their own, they gain independence. They gain the ability to travel around. They gain the ability to help others. They gain the ability to be more present with their families because they can get there sooner and they're not waiting on the bus and then waiting on the actual bus for an hour and a half. That's going to stop every block. So a car gives people power. So if we would have let the auto industry go under, we would have let our power go under in, in a way, as I see it. Um, and we just couldn't do that. Healthcare in America and access to healthcare, more specifically, 
should be a right. We need a constitutional amendment that articulates that access to quality health care is a right in America. It needs to be added into our Bill of Rights. It does. Okay, now on to the Great Depression. The Great Depression occurred under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The, I'm sorry, God, that is so wrong. Eisenhower, correction. Um, and the Great Recession occurred under President Obama. What was their response? President Roosevelt brought out the New Deal. It was a policy package that had Social Security built into it, Medicare, and a number of other protections, Medicaid. These things, this policy, this legislation was going to fix so many things that had allowed so many things about our government that allowed people just to perish. We would just sit back and just wait for them to die, you know, no one helping them. And that's not right for what is arguably the one of the most wealthiest nations on planet Earth. So the New Deal was released. And then later on down the line, you have President Johnson, who comes up with the Great Society, which builds on the New Deal even more. But in President Obama's case during the Great Recession that occurred, whereas at the end of George W. Bush's presidency and brought into Obama's, that was equally as risky and devastating. And the only things that make the Great Recession seem less scary than the Great Depression is because there was a leader who was willing to invest in the people. That leader who was willing to invest in America's power. Our power is our people. Show me a man with no friends and I will show you a man with no power. So what will what will bring about equalness or equality? Well, if you're going to answer, ask that question, you've got to sort through the difference between equality and equity. Equality is saying that everyone starts at this line. You get this, 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 this when you are born into America. It is the baseline for existence in America. And that's what equality does. It puts everyone on the same baseline, the same starting point. And I'm sure as many of you know, we don't all start